everyone and welcome to Grace Today. I'm always so honored, so excited when you make the choice to be with us in worship. Hey, got a question for you. How would you describe a person who currently does not have a vital saving relationship with Jesus Christ? What words would you use to describe that person? I'll bet if you've read the Bible much or have been in church very long, I think one of the first words that comes to your mind is the word lost, lost. And yet we need to understand that in our culture, that is offensive to many. To describe anyone, unless you're describing them lost out in the wilderness or something, if you're referring to their soul, who they are as a person, as lost, It is quite offensive to many. And yet, that is a phrase, a term, a word that Jesus used quite often. Let me give you just a few examples. In Matthew chapter 18, or rather chapter 10, verse 6, he says, Go rather to the lost sheep of of Israel. Jesus is describing his fellow country persons there as lost, spiritually speaking. Matthew 18, verse 14, in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. It's a word he uses pretty often. Another example would be Luke chapter 15. Jesus there stacks up three classic stories back to back, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And then in describing his very mission in this world, In Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So please don't miss the point. Jesus talked about this concept of lostness a lot. And so if Jesus described people that way, it's certainly not only appropriate to use that word, but it is accurate. And I would suggest to you that it's not a bad thing. In fact, to be lost means that you're cared for, that you have value. You don't lose an old plastic water bottle because it really has no value. Just get a different one. You do lose a fine jacket or piece of jewelry or a wallet, things that have value. And when Jesus is seeking and saving that which is lost, whatever else that means, it means that the ones he is seeking are loved, valuable, and precious. I want you to know that today. Wherever you are, whoever you are, wherever you are on this journey of faith or spirituality, I want you to know God loves you and that you are precious and valuable to God. That is the starting point of God's relationship with us, that we are valuable to God. That's why Jesus came, so that we could be reconciled, brought together with God the Father. Now, I read today from John's Gospel, chapter 1, starting in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. By the way, that phrase, two words, follow me, was a common invitation Jesus gave for would-be disciples follow me no 
two more profound words perhaps in scripture than Jesus' invitation to discipleship, follow me. And I pray if you've not heard that invitation, you'll hear it today. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Now this provocative passage raises an interesting question for me. Who's doing the seeking and who's doing the finding? Because in verse 43, it says Jesus found Philip, right? Two verses later, verse 45, Philip says to Nathanael, we have found the one Moses and the prophets talked about. We have found the one basically we've been looking for. So who's doing the finding? Is it Philip or Jesus? And I'm suggesting to you today it's not either or, it's both and. Yes, Jesus is a seeking Savior, but he also invites us. He invites people to be seekers as well. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Wow. <laughs> I think you'll agree those are some strong words. So let's nail this truth down. If we're asking the question, how do people get saved? How do they come to God? How do they get reconciled? How do they start this discipleship journey? It's not like one is actively seeking and the other is sitting back passive. Jesus is seeking, but he invites us to seek as well. There's a reciprocity going on here. It cuts both ways. Now, I'm curious how you would describe yourself today. Would you describe yourself as a seeker? Would you say, I'm a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ? Would you say, I'm undecided? Are you here today under duress? Do you find yourself listening online today and honestly you don't even know why? You're just curious, something stirring inside of you and you have this insatiable desire to want to check it out and learn. I would urge you to get completely honest with yourself this day and seek God and say, if you are real, would you make yourself known to me? Say to the Lord, I am seeking you and I want to find you. Each week we're listening to a different turning point story together. And today I want to ask you to look at the screens and let's listen to Jordan Brussel as he shares a little bit about his turning point. Let's listen together. I grew up at Grace Fellowship my, you know, my whole life and I 
in my early years of junior high and high school, went to went to youth group at Grace. And I remember there being all these groups of kids and students hanging out. I just kind of realized that I didn't have a core group of friends there. And what I did have when I was at high school at Shenandoah was a core group of friends. They weren't Christians, but they were still like my group of people. And so for the next few years of high school, I really just kind of sought after just the fame. I sought after the popularity, being on the varsity basketball team and, and uh, partying and drinking and smoking and doing all these things that I thought was like the cool thing to do and was what I really wanted. I just really wanted to chase after something that I thought was gonna bring me fulfillment, I thought was gonna bring me joy. I went off to Gordon College actually for my freshman year. I was still living uh, this, this type of lifestyle that I had picked up in high school and continued to do it freshman year of college, I just really realized that, you know, I don't really know what I want to do yet. So I came back home to Hudson Valley and really just started to reconnect with a lot of my friends from high school again. I continued to smoke um, a lot uh, of marijuana and I was really just, uh, that was my, my thing. I would go to class Hudson Valley and after class I would skip out in the parking lot and I would get high with my friends and, you know, I would still party on the weekends and do all of this stuff. The turning point for me there was a, it was a car accident of a drunk driver who hit um, some students and two of the students did not make it through the accident and two of the other students survived. And uh, one of the students that was in that car was, was best friends with uh, my little brother and was really close, you know, family friends with our family. And I remember it really hitting me when I found out that night um, I, was, I was high. And I remember getting the call from my dad saying, I'm taking your brother to the hospital to go see Matt and I was just like, didn't really know what to make of the whole thing. And as I kind of started to process throughout those coming days and months after that, it was like, man, like if I were to die today, like split second, just not even thinking twice, like what, what would happen uh, to me if I passed away? And so that kind of scared me, it kind of freaked me out. In the spring of 2013 was I started to feel a lot more like weight and guilt for a lot of the things that I was doing. And I can't explain it, because I'd never felt it before. Um, other than that, I think God was really starting to work on my soul. I think he was really starting to work on my heart in a way that I had never experienced before. And out of nowhere, I'd, I would never do this normally. Um, I remember coming home some days and just cracking open my Bible and, and reading Proverbs. And really that kind of spoke to me, the whole idea of wisdom and you know what a wise person does versus what a foolish person does. And, I remember that having a big impact on me. And so that moment of realizing that I was a sinner, uh, that I was someone who was not living the right life. And I think what it really was for me was realizing that I could have a relationship with Christ that was so different than anything I had ever thought of. You know, growing up in, in church and growing up at Grace my entire childhood, I, I knew the right things to say. I knew the answers as a Christian, but I never really had that relationship with Jesus until the Holy Spirit convicted me and, and saved me. So I'm able to freely move forward in a relationship with God, and I'm able to, to do that uh, in a way where I don't feel uh, condemned or guilty when, when, I, when I mess up. When I mess up, I know that I can always go back to God. And the coolest thing is that I can be so open with Him because He already knows about everything that's going on in my life. So I can tell Him about you know, how, I, how I sinned the other day or how I realized what I did was wrong and I'm forgiven and I'm able to, to move forward and I'm free to continue to grow, which I think is something that I didn't have before. I didn't have that freedom to grow because I was so chained and so enslaved to the ways I was living um, before I became a Christian, before I had that turning point.
Now, what about you? Have you had a turning point? And would you describe yourself as a seeker today? Do you desire a true, authentic relationship with the living God? Listen, God spoke a powerful word through his prophet Jeremiah to his old covenant people who were feeling alienated, estranged. They felt separated not only from their homeland, but from their God. Listen to what God said through Jeremiah. Powerful. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. That's good news for anyone who has a heart to seek God. Because God's saying, look, I'm not hiding. I want to be found by you. Seek me and you will find me. So let's unpack this passage for a few moments together. First, I want to discuss the idea of Philip seeking Jesus. And then I want to flip the tables over completely and talk about Jesus seeking and finding Philip. So how does a person seek for God? Occasionally out in the lobby, I'll have someone walk up. I love to meet new people, love to have conversations. And someone will walk up and say, Pastor, I'm here today. And uh, I just want you to know I really need to find God in my life. And often they'll share something that's going on and say, I really need to find God. And I'm always intrigued by the stories. And I'm always wanting to encourage people to press into God. Well, I find it interesting here that Philip, in these verses, it's really interesting what happens. Look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip is clearly a seeker. Where's he been seeking? Well, the text gives us some clues to that, doesn't it? It's obvious that Philip has been seeking in the scriptures. That's one of his sources for looking. And he mentions the law of Moses here. And when he read the law of Moses, you know what he found? He found something about the moral character of God, that God is all-powerful. And Philip had to admit he was not. That God is all loving. And Philip had to say, well, I'm not that way. I love some people, especially those who love me, but I certainly don't love everyone. He found that God is all holy. And Philip had to admit he is not. So when you read the law of Moses, when you read the old covenant, and it tells you all these things about the character of God, what you realize pretty quickly is that, wow, I fall short of this. And if I'm ever going to be brought together with a holy God, there's too big of a chasm here. Somebody has to bridge this chasm and I'll never do it on my own. I need a savior. I need the Messiah. And that's what Jesus came to do is to bridge that gap between sinful people like me, like you, and holy God. Paul put it like this in Galatians chapter 3. He said, so the law, referring to the law of Moses, was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. How does the law lead us to Christ? Again, as you read the law and what God requires, you get so frustrated, you get utterly exasperated at your inability to keep the law. 
and do what it requires of you. And so in your heart, you begin to yearn and cry out for a savior. And that's apparently what Philip was doing. And so when he found Jesus, he recognized him with discernment as the one we've been looking for. The one Moses and the prophets told us about. So he searched in the law. He also searched in the prophets. He said, this is the one whom the prophets wrote about. Jesus not only fulfilled the law, but he fulfills prophecy. Now, one of the most exciting things about studying the Bible to me is how Jesus fulfilled so many intricate Old Testament prophecies. I've said this to you before, but if you picked up today's newspaper and in today's newspaper you read events that are going to happen a year from now, and if a year from now those events predicted come true in precise detail the way they were predicted, that's impressive. You want to get to know who that writer was, who that editor is. And that's precisely what the Old Testament prophets did in their prophecies about Jesus. You know, prophecy is really just history, but it's written before it happened. And it's so exciting to see the prophecies that have already come true in the Bible, but we as believers are yearning for all of them to come true in the future because God's word never, ever fails. So it's exciting. Prophecy is history written in advance. And so in short, Philip recognizes Jesus for who he really is because he's been searching, looking. He's been down at the synagogue, gathered with God's people as the word of God is read. And now when he finally meets Jesus, he recognizes him for who he is. So that's Philip's side of the equation. But as I promised, I want to flip the tables now for a few moments. And I want us to look now at Jesus' side. Because I told you it's reciprocal. Jesus is a seeking Savior, but he's called us to be seeking sinners. And so the other side is that Jesus was looking for Philip. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. I want you to know today, although Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, His Spirit is still here and is seeking. I want you to remember that. In fact, I don't want to freak you out or give you the eebie-jeebies, but I tell you this is true. God's Spirit is in this place right now. And it's like he's walking the aisles. It's like he's sitting next to you. It's like he's hovering over some of you. And he is here to help stir you, to help open blind eyes, to help remove blindness, to help show the light, and to help reveal who Jesus really is. Now, I believe that Scripture talks about at least three. There are probably more. But I think clearly, very clearly, there are at least three categories of people the Bible talks about that Jesus is seeking. First, it's those who could hardly care less. Think about that. Do you know any people who could hardly care less? At least that's the vibe you get when it comes to God. Isaiah the prophet wrote in chapter 65, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. 
I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, in other words, they could hardly care less, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long I've held up my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face. God starts by stirring in the hearts of people who right now, this moment, could hardly care less about God and his agenda. You say, now, Pastor, how does he do that? Well, I think he begins to reveal himself to them. He begins to reveal himself. Now, I've shared these three words before, but I would really want you to know this. If someone asks you, how does God reveal himself? There are three ways. They all begin with C. Here they are again. Oh, I'd be so happy if you all learned these. One is creation. That's your first C word. God reveals himself through a general revelation in nature. Paul talks about that in Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. That's one way, through creation. Hard to look at creation without wondering. There's got to be a divine designer behind this. It's too intricate, too special, too awesome. But then there's a second level, and that is through conscience. Paul goes on in Romans 2 and talks about that. He talks about, what about those who don't even have the Bible. They don't even have any scripture at all. Paul says, no worries. Look, God's revealing to to them himself, not only in creation, but in their very conscience. It's like he's put this understanding, some things are right and some things are wrong, and it's written in their hearts, Paul says there. He's put a revelation of himself in their hearts. And here's the good news. When people... Follow the clues they get in creation and conscience. It leads them thirdly, here's your third C, to Christ. Paul talks about that in Romans 3 and following. So when God begins to stir in our lives, here's the way it often looks. We begin to ask questions like, isn't there more than this? Is life just a dead-end street? Am I just like an ant doomed to perish, floating on a burning log in the middle of the ocean? No hope, no future. Surely, if there's a divine being, we're created for more than just this. And these thoughts begin to go through your mind. Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity into the hearts of people. And so he's given us this sense there is something more. But make no mistake, friends, we live in a culture, oh, I hope you know this, where there are a lot of people who could hardly care less. One man was asked, what do you think is the biggest attitudinal problem in our world today? Is it ignorance or apathy? He said, I don't know and I don't care. That kind of sums it up, doesn't it? We live in a culture like that. It's been described as the whatever culture. Whatever. Oh, whatever. I'm not sure the truth can be known. I'm not really sure I care. Whatever. We also live in a culture 
where the rise of the nuns is very significant. Nuns, N-O-N-E-S. What in the world does that mean? There's a book by that name, The Rise of the Nuns. What it means is this phenomenon in our culture where there are more and more people who make no religious identification at all. Have you been there? Have you ever filled out one of those personal information sheets and it asks you about your religion? One of those surveys where it wants to know what your religious persuasion is? And it used to be that the vast majority, of course, would check Christian because this was a nation that was founded largely by Christian people. But more and more, you have double digits of people now, and it's growing dramatically, who check the nun box, the nuns they're called. I have no religion. I'm not Christian. I'm not Hindu. I'm not atheist. I'm not Buddhist. None is what they check. And it's sort of, again, is indicative of this, I could hardly care less. Whatever gets me through the day, that's my religion. Several years ago, I had lunch with a successful businessman. I didn't know his story. This is the first time we'd ever met. And he agreed to sit down to lunch, and I was just asking him about himself. He was certainly very successful, popular, handsome, very likable kind of person, sharp, intelligent. At one point, I asked him what his beliefs about the afterlife were. And he said, I think we rot in the ground and are eaten by worms. And that's the end. There's nothing more. We rot in the ground. We're eaten by worms. That's the end. There's nothing more. And I probed with some more questions around that to see what he really believed or how firm his convictions were about that. But, you know, I soon discovered that it seemed he wasn't even interested in the topic at all. He didn't even want to go there. It was sort of, well, whatever. I'm more focused on what's going to get me through the day right now and make me feel successful. And I believe the number of people like that is growing astronomically in our culture. But hear me today, God breaks into people who could hardly care less. And if that's you today, I want you to know God's probably stirring in your heart. And it may be that one of the reasons that you're even listening today because your curiosity is peaked. And when we follow the revelation and creation and conscience, God may just lead us face to face with the living Lord Jesus Christ. But God is not only seeking those who could hardly care. He is seeking the cynical as well. I'm always struck by the details in the Bible. And here it tells us that Philip is from Bethsaida. It doesn't usually include details like that. Although it includes Andrew and Peter says they're from Bethsaida also. I wonder why the Bible told us that. I think there's a reason. What do we know about Bethsaida? In Matthew 11, Jesus spoke a stern word to the people of Bethsaida. He said, woe to you, Bethsaida, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Among the miracles performed in Bethsaida was the healing of a blind man. And it's like the message here is, look, 
You know God is real. You've seen it. You saw that man. You knew him when he was blind. You saw that he could now see. And you saw all of that right in front of your very eyes. But your hearts are so hardened and cynical that even that kind of a miracle can't move you. Tyre and Sidon, by the way, were Old Testament cities that were known for their hardened, cynical hearts. And so think about it. Philip is from Bethsaida. He grew up in an environment that was antagonistic to the Lord Jesus Christ. And later Jesus pronounced that stern woe and warning to Bethsaida just as we read. But that antagonistic environment was there already. Now listen up, listen up, listen up, please listen up. Do you understand that we too live in an environment that is increasingly antagonistic to the Lord Jesus Christ? Listen. For the last 1,500 years or so, in the Western world at least, we have had the privilege of having a culture that was mostly shaped and dominated by Judeo-Christian thinking. It actually shaped our laws. It shaped our moral codes, the laws in our courtroom, the way we relate to one another as people was shaped by the Bible, by Judeo-Christian thinking. And our view of God, our whole views of sexual morality and what is right and what is wrong in life were shaped by this worldview, by Christian values. But suddenly it's as though we've awakened from a dream and we are now marginalized. It's happening. It's happening. It's already happened. And suddenly the Christian worldview is barely tolerated. I mean, go try it in the college classroom. Go try it in the public forum. Go try it in the place of debate and see how it gets received. And many Christians are getting scared and wringing their hands about it going, oh, we're always going to hit a brick wall when we share the gospel. People can never be saved in an environment like this that's so hostile. Hear me. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. Because the gospel is still the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. God is not only able to reach those who could hardly care less, he is able to break through the hardened cynicism of people who are in outright rebellion against God. And trust me, God has his people out there. And when you represent Jesus and when you share him and share his love, God's got his Phillips and his Nathaniels out there. He's got people who are ready to respond to the gospel. He's gonna break through, folks. And heaven will rejoice. But there's one final category, the careless, the cynical. He is also seeking today. Oh, I'm so happy about this. He is seeking the committed. And I'll even tell you, it's often the careless and the cynical who eventually wind up being the highly committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a verse that's become one of my favorites through the years. It's found way back in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 16. Listen to this, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth 
to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I like what one translation says, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. Another translation says, the eyes of the Lord are running here and there. He's looking for hearts that are bent toward him. Is that you? Is that you today? You listening online, you listening in the sanctuary, is that you? Is your heart at a place and God has brought you here as he's been seeking you, almost like the hound of heaven, and you're at a point today where you're ready to say, yes, I am committed, Jesus, to you. Your heart is ready for that kind of step. I want you to know something. God deserves all the glory for that. You did not bring that about. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Sometimes we want to take all the credit. Oh, you know, I checked it out carefully and I got all my T's crossed and all my I's dotted and boy, I finally brilliantly on my part realized that, you know what, this is true after all. It's time that I just said yes. Well, we may think it's that way, but God's been doing the heavy lifting. He's been removing the scales of blindness. He's been turning on lights. He's been showing the way. He's been changing our heart and soul it is the spirit of God listen the spirit of God who makes us aware of our need John 16 says when he comes he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment but I want to leave you with this thought today while it is true that God has called us to ask and seek and knock and he said when you do you're going to find doors going to be open you're going to receive it is also equally true that God himself is the seeker and he's moving and stirring today in people listening to me right now and he's drawing you but I leave you with this sobering idea straight from the Bible. It is possible to resist God's movement in your life. Stephen, the first Christian martyr looked at the Sanhedrin council and said, why do you always resist the Holy Spirit? He is active, he's working, and you just keep on resisting him. But Jesus has promised, everyone who comes to me, I will in no wise turn away. Is he calling you to follow today? Is he moving right there along the aisle where you're sitting, right in that row where you are today? Is he kind of tapping you on the shoulder and saying, this is your moment. I invite you today to follow him. Andrew did, Simon did, Philip did, Nathaniel did, and a whole host of others. They all had their turning points and this could be the turning point for you. May we pray. Father, I ask that by your spirit, you would draw men and women and young people to yourself right now. May this be the legitimate turning point, the authentic moment of encounter of the living God. Thank you that you are seeking. 
Thank you that you are drawing. May we respond in this very moment in faith to your invitation and follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.